0: We are delighted uh, to have with us uh, today, both uh, in this morning worship service and also I invite you back this evening to our Summerfest session. Uh, delighted to have uh, Mike Swiger. Uh, as a church, it's been our joy in this past year uh, to begin to partner with the ministry that, uh, that Mike serves as the executive director of uh, True Freedom Ministries. Uh, and uh, it's been fascinating even in this past year to, to follow what the lord is doing the way he is blessing the work i know i talking with mike there's a sense in which he wishes he didn't have to have this ministry the fact that uh, the fact that he has this ministry and uh, the fact that it is doing well is indicative of so many so many heartbreaking life-breaking needs that are out in in our communities and in northeast ohio uh, the the work of True Freedom Ministries is a is a work that is being recognized, blessed of the Lord, but also recognized within the state of Ohio uh, for the impact it is having, uh, especially on, on, on inmates who are who are coming out of prison and, and uh, trying to get back into society and uh, trying to help prepare them for that. Besides uh, the ministry that uh, that True Freedom has and ministering to homeless up in Cleveland, it's just been a delight. We are learning more about this ministry. So from this pulpit in the bulletin, when you see things about True Freedom Ministries, I want you to to think of Mike, uh, who directs that ministry. You'll know what we're talking about. It is our hope and desire in the coming year uh, to be putting more specific opportunities in front of you as a church of of some hands-on things you can do uh, to be a part of of this work that is really making an impact for Christ uh, here, especially in Northeast Ohio. Uh, come back tonight, uh, we've been continuing our series, and tonight Mike's going to be talking about uh, how, how, to, how to minister and reach out to, to that prodigal friend, or the friend that, is, uh, that has maybe someone in their family that's going, uh, going through some of the struggles. Mike comes with first-hand experience, he was sharing with me just a little bit before some of uh, his thinking from the Word of God, I'm looking forward to it uh, tonight at 6 o'clock. But Mike, it's good to have you back, and we want to welcome you to Northfield Baptist Church, Lord bless you as you come.
1: Good morning, now turn in your Bibles if you would to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at four verses this morning, Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 through 13, and the topic we're going to be looking at specifically is contentment, Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 through 13. So as you turn there, I'll tell you the short story of a small businessman. He was an Italian immigrant Uh, when he came to this country, uh, rather poor, and he kept his accounts receivable in his shoe store in a a cigar box, and he kept all his accounts payable on a little spindle nail, and he kept all his cash in his cash drawer. And his son said to him, I don't see how you can run your business this way. How do you know what your profits are? And the man said, son, when I got off the boat, all I had on was a pair of pants He says, today, we have a house that's paid for, I have a business that's thriving. Your sister is a teacher, your brother's a doctor, and you're an accountant. If you add all that up and subtract the pants, there's your profit. (laughs) (laughs) Truly a man who found the secret of being content. So we're going to look at uh, how Paul learned that today. But truly... In my mind, the secret to contentment as a Christian is to understand the sovereignty of God. Not only to understand it, but to trust it and to walk in it. So Philippians uh, 4.13 is a very famous passage. It's often abused. I remember watching a boxing match 30 years ago. Uh, Evander Holyfield, who's a Christian, had on the side of his trunks, Philippians 4.13. Because he was fighting Mike Tyson. And uh, while that's a nice testimony... 4.13 4.13 has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to knock another man out. <laughs> but that's what we do with the Bible, we distort it. But some background information on the book of Philippians, because the city of Philippi has a very fascinating uh, history that really demonstrates the sovereignty of God. Uh, Philippi is in a community that's now Greece. Uh, Philip II began ruling over a little c- country called Macedonia not the town a couple miles down a row, but Macedonia, in 359. And when he took over, his country was the size of Maryland. And it was a rather small outpost. And he set out to do two things, expand his kingdom and modernize his army. And he recognized right away that the area right to his south was a mountainous area that had the only natural pathway between Europe and Asia. It was a trade route. So controlling that would allow him to have economic power. But more importantly, the mountains in that region were loaded with gold and silver. And Philip knew the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. So he modernized his army. And in the year 356, he annexed that territory. And the first thing he did was he put a garrison of soldiers right there to control the mines and began setting the local people to work. He also enlarged and fortified the city. And as a very humble man, he named the city after himself. Philippi, pertaining to Philip. So that was in the year 356, and that was a great year for Philip II. Aside from taking over this very strategic point, uh, two other major things happened in his life. His racehorse won the Olympic Games, which was a big deal even back then. But more importantly, his first son was born. He named his son Alexander. And as an emperor and as a king, nothing but the best for his new son. So he hired a private tutor who would instruct Alexander in all the ways of life. And that tutor's name was Aristotle. Nothing but the best. So over the next 10 years, Philip vigorously mined the gold and silver out of that area. I took some notes because this was incredible. He was pulling out 1,000 talents of gold a year. So just to kind of put that in modern perspective, a talent of gold weighs 94 pounds. It's a pretty big chunk of gold. One ounce of gold in today's standard goes for $1,206. So if you do the math, at today's prices, one talent of gold is worth $1.8 million. And he was pulling out 1,000 of those a year, which is $1.8 billion every year. He used that money to expand his army, but also he used it to bribe his way into conquering areas. And he has a very famous quote, and he said, I can capture any city if there is a path up which I can drive a donkey laden with gold. <laughs> because all, you're always going to find somebody who's willing to sell out their community. So he conquered all of Greece, which was his goal, and he was assassinated. His son, Alexander, later known as Alexander the Great, took his father's philosophy and his money and his army and conquered the world. And that's very important for a couple reasons. Uh, If you read the book of Daniel, Alexander's conquest of the world was foretold. Alexander was fulfilling biblical prophecy. And one thing he did at the instruction of Aristotle was he Hellenized every area he conquered which meant everybody could only do commerce in Greek. You had to write Greek, you had to speak Greek to do commercial transactions. So he conquered the entire world so that now he unified the globe with one language. And that's important because if he hadn't gone east and made everybody speak Greek, Paul could not have gone west and evangelized the world in the Greek language, writing most of the New Testament. So everything Alexander did was very important. Well, of course, the Greek Empire fell. The Roman Empire took over that region about 200 years later. And by that time, the goal was gone. Philippi was a small little town. Until the year 42 BC, when a very important event took place. Julius Caesar was assassinated. And because of that, the Roman Empire was ripped in two, into two factions— You had Cassius and Brutus on one side. They were the people who planned the the whole execution, who wanted to liberate the Roman Empire and turn it into a republic. On the other side, you have Mark Anthony and a guy named um, Octavian who wanted to keep it a republic or an empire. They split the the Roman army in half, and they went to war with each other, and the deciding battle was fought in the city of Philippi. It was a two-day battle. 16,000 men died, which back then was an utter bloodbath including in that battle, Mark Anthony survived, Octavius survived, but Brutus and Cassius died, which left only two men standing. They co-ruled the empire for about 10 years until Mark Anthony fell in love with a woman. Her name was Cleopatra. It's not just any woman. This was Julius Caesar's mistress. And they concocted a plan. Mark Anthony has an army. Cleopatra has a navy. They decided to go to war against Octavius. They raged on for several months. The final battle was fought outside of Philippi. It was a sea battle, and Mark Anthony and Cleopatra lost. They committed suicide, very romantically, terribly, leaving Octavius the last man standing, who now is the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. He gets back to Rome. The Senate changes his name to Caesar Augustus, and he declared that all the world should be taxed. Forcing a Jewish carpenter and his wife to move from Nazareth down to Bethlehem so that Jesus Christ could be born where the Bible said he should be born. Because God's the God of history. That's God's sovereignty. And if God could orchestrate all those events of history, can he not manage your life? Can you not trust him with the circumstances that play out in front of you? Nothing happens by accident. Because think about how crazy this is. The city of Philippi is not remembered because of the man who founded it, or the son who conquered the world, or the battles fought there. It was remembered because one Roman prisoner on death row wrote a letter to a church thanking them for supporting him. And that man was Paul. We serve an awesome God, amen? How's that for prison ministry? <laughs> Most of Paul's books are written from prison. So look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. The Word of God reads, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In, every, in every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Father, we ask a blessing upon our time on your word. We pray, Father, that you remove any distractions from our hearts and our minds. And would keep us from hearing what the Holy Spirit would say to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to walk through these verses. We're not really going to camp out in verse 13. But let's take a look at verse 10 first. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. If you read the book of Philippians, the the word joy or any variant of joy, rejoice, is mentioned seven times in four chapters. So the keynote of the whole book is joy, which is odd for a guy who's in a dungeon chained to a Roman guard. His circumstances were not causing him great joy. But he had already discovered the the secret to contentment, and that was Jesus Christ. So now at length, so some time had passed since he's heard from these folks. You've revived your concern for me. Now, Paul was not hinting that his friends had forgotten him. They just simply lacked the opportunity to show him they were thinking of him. But if you're locked in death row, he has a need, and they demonstrated they loved him. They sent him a gift. Because as soon as they found out where he was, they sent support to him. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. So Paul's not trying to be understood misunderstood here. He's not trying to say he was so excited about their gift like a child at Christmas time, so happy to get the money. And he's not hinting that he needs more. I mean, how many times have you bumped into somebody who, when you ask the question, is hinting about something else? And sometimes it's so not subtle, it's hard to ignore that. <laughs> so it's not saying, yeah, thank you for the money. I could really use some more. Or thank you for the 35 cents you gave. I really need more than that. Paul's not trying to hint that he needs more money from them. So he's saying, I'm not that I'm speaking of being in need. You know, on the contrary, Paul has already learned to be satisfied. That's a difficult lesson to learn. We're going to see that in a moment. So he's not speaking about his need. The next phrase says, For I have learned in whatever circumstance and situation I am to be content. Now, if you take a moment right now, can you say with 100% certainty, you are content with your life? Are you content with your job? Are you content with your spouse? Are you content with your children? Are you content with your home? With your neighborhood? With your health? Are you content? Most people I work with are not. But it's interesting. I work with very, very poor, broken people. They're not content. I also have a lot of supporters who are also not content. For Paul says, I have learned to be content. You're not born with that disposition. Most of us always have a desire for a little bit more, right? Uh, John D. Rockefeller, one of Cleveland's most famous, successful businessmen, died uh, the richest man in the world. And when asked why he keeps driving, why he keeps growing his company, when is enough enough, you know what his answer was? Just a little more. Because discontentment cannot be satisfied. We have to learn to be content. It's a part of the sanctifying process. It all starts with being completely trusting in a sovereign God. But what is contentment? Do you ever think about that? Contentment is not having everything you want. In fact, people who have everything you want tend to be most miserable. The highest group of suicides in the country are among millionaires. And if you look at the lives of people who hit the lottery, within a couple, two or three years... They're devastated and ruined because they thought money would fix their problems. If the problem's inside your heart, it doesn't matter where your house is. Contentment is a state of joyful satisfaction with whatever God has entrusted to you. If God is sovereign over your life, then He knows what's best. How many here have children? Do they ever ask you for anything? (laughs) <laughs> they're the gift that keeps on taking <laughs> most of the time when they're really small you have to say no right you have a two-year-old son who wants to have a knife to play with and you say no it's not because you're trying to deprive them of joy it's because what they're asking for will harm them we ask God for all kinds of things that will harm us we have to trust him to give us what we can handle being content is not having what you want. It's wanting what you have. There's three D's that I think are symptoms of somebody who's discontented: Dissatisfaction. No matter how good things are going on, they're always complaining. You may have a coworker like that. It could be the greatest day in the world. everybody gets raises, and what they're going to say is, "Could have gave us more?" I bet they have more. No matter what the circumstance happens to be, they find a reason to complain. It's a spirit of dissatisfaction. Or they have the gift of discouragement. ever meet somebody like that? You're on for 10 minutes and boy, it just brings you down. (laughs) You might know that person. My person might be sitting here today. They're walking down the hallway. You go, I got someplace to go. Because no matter what's going on in their lives... They're a bummer to be around. And the third thing is they cause division. Because they're dissatisfied, because they're discouraged, they can't be content that you're happy. In prison, we refer to that as the lobster syndrome. You know, if you put a bunch of lobsters in a, in a, a, a tank or a tank, have you ever go to Red Lobster? They have little rubber bands on their claws. You know why there's rubber bands on them? So if one is gone away, the other ones will grab him and pull him down or they'll fight somebody who's doing better than them. When someone's discontent, they are not happy that you're content. And they will, God will um, allow them either to be a thorn in your flesh <laughs> or the devil will use them as a wedge of division. So if you look at the whole of your life, if you're dissatisfied, discouraged, and divisive, you have not learned the secret of contentment. Uh, ben Franklin said, contentment makes a poor man rich. And discontentment makes a rich man poor. Prison is an antidote to all that. When I first came home, my first home uh, was 60 years old. It had the original bathroom with no fan, (laughs) the original kitchen, two bedrooms, and the original windows. John Parentcheck put new windows in my house. Thank you, John. So when I got married, my sister from California, who was very successful, came, and she's looking around this 800-square-foot, 60-year-old home. It's kind of run down. She says, how long are you going to live in this dump? I said, I spent the last two decades living in a bathroom with another man. This is a palace. (laughs) All my possessions fit in a toy box. I got more than I need. And I said to her, my body could only be in one room at a time. It's not getting what you want. It's wanting what you have with the right perspective. Verse 12, Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Now that's not just some flowery thing he's saying there. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, don't turn there, I'll read this to you. Uh, He describes what he's experienced as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentile, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, Often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure I have of my anxiety for the churches. So Paul knew what it meant to be brought low. Now, I dare say no one in this room has gone through that. I mean, we all have stuff in life, right? Life happens. Sickness, there's death in our families. There's, you get fired from a job unjustly. Life isn't easy, right? But no one's gone to that extreme. And Paul, having experienced all this, says, I am content. He's learned how to be brought low. He also says, I know how to abound. Now, how many know abounding is better, right? (laughs) Paul's not bragging about or desiring to be brought low. But he knows how to be content being brought low. But he also knows how to be content with material success which in my mind is the more danger test that we would face. Um, Moses talked about this in Deuteronomy 8. Let me read this to you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Success is more dangerous to a Christian than failure. It's easy to cling on to God when things are tough. But when things get a little better, it's easy to say, well, I'm not so pressed about that. And when I was in prison, I earnestly prayed every night for Christ to come back. Talked about it, he could come back any time. I could not wait for him to come back to ruin count. (laughs) Because my circumstances were not very good. I really didn't want to keep going through this routine I was in it was a very, very palpable necessity for me for him to come back. And to my shame, I've been home for a dozen years, I'm married, I have wonderful children, I have a nice house, I have a wonderful ministry. I don't pray so earnestly for him to come back. Now, I want him to come back, but it's not so much desperate need like it should be. It's easy to become complacent in our lives when things get a little better. Success is a true test of contentment. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty in hunger, abundance, and need. In any and every. That's all inclusive language, isn't it? So does that mean if you lost your job yesterday or you didn't get the raise or somebody at work got promoted above you or you don't really care for what your children are doing in their careers and things are bad. In any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret. So what's the secret? The word secret is really interesting. Is that word is only used here in the whole Bible. It's a reference to a secret initiation right into a secret society. Uh, if you study secret societies, or and there's still some going on today, the adage is those who know the secret don't speak of it. Those who speak of it don't know it. So Paul says, hey, I've got a secret here. I'm going to share with you. By experiences of his life, he's allowed the Holy Spirit to apply to his heart the lesson of contentment, which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the midst of death row, in the dungeon, chains on his hands and feet, he had joy. Joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is based on something that happens, right? An event takes place, it causes us to rejoice. For instance, did anybody watch the Browns game when the Browns beat the defending Super Bowl champions? If you're a Kopeck, you're happy about that. <laughs> I was too. Well, that's, an event took place that caused me to be happy. It had nothing to do with my joy. Joy is a gift that comes from God. It doesn't depend on your circumstances. I worked in the chapel when I was at Lurian Correctional, and I had to walk quite a distance to get across there. And there was all kind of these guys in the yard. And I was walking to work one day at my Bible, and I was smiling, like I smile most days. And the guy yelled out from the crowd, I bet I could knock that smile off your face. And I said, you didn't give me the smile you can't take it from me. Because joy comes from inside. It has to come out, right? Paul, writing in First Timothy, speaking and extending this thought, says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. We, can, we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we should be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Dissatisfaction will drive you into ruin and destruction. So he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things is a reference to being able to be content in all circumstances. It shouldn't be sat on the side of your boxing trunks. It shouldn't be tattooed on your forehead. It should be tattooed on your heart. Contentment comes from within, trusting a sovereign God who, first of all, if you're saved, he's forgiven you of all your sins. That should be a cause of great joy. Secondly, he's given us a Bible that allows us to have instructions for how to live happily on this planet. We should be grateful for that. But if that wasn't enough, when you die, you are going to heaven to be with him forever. That should also cause great joy. And if that's the lens by which you see your circumstances, you can be content with wherever you're at because this assignment on planet earth for you is only temporary. Whether it's 50 years, 80 years, 105 years, that's a drop in the bucket in light of eternity. There's a story about a lady who was saved later in life. And uh, she was very poor, but very active in the church. And she gave whatever she had. And every time there was any function, she was the first one there helping to set up and clean up. And she was a doer. And she constructed, constricted lung cancer. And she was gone through a really agonizing period. And the pastor came to see her. And she had a smile on her face and she'd cough. And he said, How can you smile under these circumstances? And she said, when I first got saved, I very clearly heard the Lord tell me, Betty, go do this. Betty, go give that. Betty, do this. And She says, now I hear him tell me, Betty, lay still and cough. She trusted God with their circumstances. It doesn't come naturally. Paul had to learn that. We learn that through applying God's word to the struggles and challenges of life. And if you do it his way, he'll show you you can trust him more. Paul said, I can do all things through life, through him that strengthens me. If Christ will strengthen you for all things, that's a phenomenal promise, isn't it? Whatever Jesus Christ commands you to do, or command you to endure, he will give you the power to do it. Do you believe that? Can you trust that? Even if it doesn't make sense. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? I mean, the voice of the martyrs are here today. All those men and women died for their faith. And Psalms say, God delights in the death of his saints. I remember the first time I read that passage as a young Christian, I thought, I don't understand that. Why would God delight in the death of his saints? Well, he calls them home to be with him. That's the greatest reward there is. But he empowered them to endure death as a witness for him. If he can empower martyrs to do that, he can empower you to go through the struggles you're facing right now. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you in Jesus' name for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege, Father, of being able to trust you during the difficulties of life. Father, whatever station of life we're in right now, whether we're young, newly married, whether we're seniors who are in the very final chapters of our lives or anywhere in between, dear Lord, we pray that you give us the grace and the mercy and the wisdom to trust you more. Father, we thank you most of all that you allowed your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And because of that incredible sacrifice, you draw us to yourself. And because you draw us to yourself, you're not content to leave us who we were and what we're trapped in. But you mold us to the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of your son. As we go through this molding process, the sanctifying process, teach us the secret of contentment. Teach us to trust you more. Teach us to trust you when we don't understand. And give us the gift of faith. that opens up our spiritual eyes to see there is a purpose in everything you do. You tell us, dear Lord, that all things work together for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. So when things happen that doesn't make sense, I pray, Father, that you give us a reminder of today through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can trust you when it doesn't make sense because you are working these things out for our good. We pray a blessing upon this church, upon everyone here today, every family represented. We pray that you would draw them closer to yourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.